Good afternoon, Memorial Baptist friends and family, and welcome back to our midweek edition of our podcast for August 19th, uh, 2020. I am truly blessed and highly favored. You know, God is amazing. And uh, this past weekend, on August 15th, um, our son Nathan and his lovely wife Ashley, uh, she gave birth to our sixth grandchild, a little boy. His name is Nash Ridgely Adams, and um, he weighed eight pounds, two ounces, and uh, was born at 707 and was 20 and a half inches long. Um, God has been so good. Uh, We just thank you uh, for um, providing. Um, We thank you, Father, for new life and uh, what a blessing it is. This is our second grandson. And uh, we're thankful so much for all that God is doing. You know, my wife and I, Tracy, uh, uh, we are celebrating 34 years of marriage uh, this month. And it's been such a blessing in in our lives to walk this journey together with God and and just to know that He is in control of all of it. Um, What a blessing it is. You know, many of our schools in the area are back in session, even if only online. So please continue to pray for our teachers, our administrators, and students, since this is a very difficult transition for everyone involved. We're continuing uh, to meet for in-person worship on Sunday mornings at 1045 a.m. So please join us, if you can, in our worship center. Miss Casey Jumper is now hosting kids' worship in the fellowship hall at the same time as our morning worship. So uh, bring your kids, uh, mask up, and come out and join us for worship on Sunday mornings. Brother Jeff Watts is leading our student ministry, and they are meeting on Wednesday evenings between 6 and 7. They're also meeting in the fellowship hall so that social distancing and disinfecting protocols can be carried out. We are meeting in person in the college room for a midweek prayer service at 6 p.m. on Wednesday evenings. Mask up and come on out and join us. These are the ministries that we are currently engaging in. We are hoping to keep adding ministries as we continue to open up. You know, God has been so good and so faithful to us. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 15 says, Through Him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips that give thanks to His name. And do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices, God is pleased. Brothers and sisters, our nation needs to see a visible expression of Jesus now more than ever. Also, if you for some reason have contracted the virus, Please call the church office and let us know if you test positive for for COVID-19. We need that information to figure out who else was exposed or may be infected so they can go get tested. We want to be good citizens and neighbors and doing our part to limit any spread of the virus among us. As I've said before, if you have any questions or concerns, please call us. I know this is not an easy time for any of us, and we're trying to keep our people and our most vulnerable uh, ones safe as we open up slowly and cautiously. And again, if you have questions or concerns, please call us. 
Each of us should assess our own risk individually and in relation to our own families. Please exercise the freedom and good sense to do what you need to do, extending grace to others as they do what they need to do too. Now before we look in our scripture passage for this afternoon, I would like us to pray together. And if you would, I would just invite you to to pray with me while I lead us in prayer. Loving Father, I thank you for this time, and I thank you, Father, for this day. Uh, Lord, you are the creator, you are the sustainer of all that is. We are so blessed by you, Father. We're thankful for new life. We're thankful for the birth of Nash. We're thankful for uh, how you are bringing others uh, into this world. Father, what a joy it is to call you our Father, to be called your children, When we think about how vast and how uh, magnificent, how strong, how how great you truly are, Father, we we seem so insignificant. The stars, the the galaxies that you put into place. Uh, You spoke the entire world into being. And yet you consider us. Father, you've given us everything that we need for life. You've given us the provisions of daily life. You've given us what we need for eternal life. Father, we are truly blessed. It's our joy to worship you. Lord Jesus, thank you for the forgiveness of sin. Thank you for giving your lifeblood that we might be made right with God. Thank you for being our mediator. Thank you for being our high priest. Thank you for doing the things that have allowed us to be adopted into the family of God. Holy Spirit, thank you for indwelling. Thank you for guiding us in all truth. Thank you for being our teacher and guide. Father, I just want to lift up those in need of a touch from you. I I think of Sheila having surgery on her shoulder today. Sheila Hubbard, I pray that you would bless her. I pray for healing. I pray for wisdom for the doctors. I ask that you would comfort her and Steve and their family during this time. I pray, Father, for Christy and Anthony Morehouse. I pray, Father, that you would be with her as she undergoes these these treatments. I pray for good results. I pray, Father, that You would continue to give the doctors wisdom to know how to treat what's going on in her body. I pray for healing. Lord, I I lift up those among our our church family who may be grieving uh, over the the death of a a loved one. I lift up the shoemates. I pray that you would be with them in a, a very special way during this time. I pray, Father, that you would just continue to guide them, um, I pray for the family of, of, uh, of, of Barbara. Uh, I ask God that you would um, comfort her in the loss of her son, Cy. Um, Juanel's grandson, Joel's nephew. I pray that you would uh, just continue to show yourself mighty. Lord, I ask that you would be with our congregation as we continue to meet. I pray for safety. I pray for 
health. I ask, Father, that you would draw men and women to yourself, that you would bring sweeping revival all across this nation, that you would pour your spirit out. Father, I pray for the souls of men and women that they would be saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray for our nation. I pray for the upcoming election. I pray, Father, that you would bring unity in a, a much divided nation. I pray, Father, that you would help us to, um, to be bridge builders and peacemakers. I pray, Father, that your word would be would go out, and, and Father, that it would accomplish the purpose for which you send it. I pray, Father, that you would bring a great revival, a great awakening all across this land. Father, that you would do that in our hearts, that you would do that in our nation. Father, that it would be something that, that pleases you. Father, that, that we would once again bring you glory and honor in this land. Father, I'm asking that you would preserve this nation. Father, that you would push back the darkness. That you, your light, your glorious light would shine. Father, I pray for the persecuted church around the world. I pray for the nation of Israel. I pray for our missionaries out spreading the gospel and doing your kingdom work in dark places. I pray a hedge of protection around them. I ask that you would be with those who are being persecuted and that you would strengthen them in their hour of persecution. Lord Jesus, I ask that you would be with our church, our ministries, that you would just continue to give us wisdom and vision as we seek to do your kingdom work right here, right now, as we plow fields, as we plant, as we water. Father, you are the one who gives the harvest. So we pray to the Lord of the harvest, Father, that you would send souls to us. Father, we thank you for loving us. We thank you for this time. We thank you, Father, for the, the prayers of the saints. God, that you would strengthen our nation, strengthen us. Give us a firm resolve, Father, that we are going to serve the Lord Jesus Christ no matter what. Father, we love you and we praise you. We thank you for loving us first. We ask, God, that you would be in your church and in and through all of us. God, that we would have a full knowledge of your will for us in everything we say, think, and do. Guide us now as we study your word. Holy Spirit, teach us. Guide us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're going to continue our study in the book of Hebrews, and we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 9. And uh, if you have your scripture and would open it up to Hebrews chapter 9, we're going to read in just a little bit um, uh, verses 23 through 28. And um, you know, I just got to say what a what a, a shout out to uh, to Braden Tanner um, and all of the college students that we saw in worship on Sunday. What a great blessing to see these students uh, coming from UMHB, coming and getting involved in our church and wanting to worship with us. And how refreshing it is to see a, a, a group of young people coming and and wanting to serve the Lord. Um, and what a what a blessing it is that ministry. So continue to lift up uh, Braden 
and uh, Caroline as they minister to these college students, uh, even while raising their own children. But uh, what a great blessing they are to us. So uh, thank you all for being here, and uh, what a blessing. Um, let's read in Hebrews chapter 9. I want to begin in verse 23 and following. And uh, let's read, and then we'll, we'll talk about it. Um, God's Word says, Therefore it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself up often, excuse me, as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world, but now once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. So Christ, also having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await Him. Wow, what a passage. What a passage. You know, speaking of college students, when I was in college, I had a physics professor who often repeated his teaching method to us, and he would say, class, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to tell you. Then I will tell you. Then I'll tell you what I told you. Then I'll review. <laughs> he knew that repetition is a major key to learning. Now, the author of Hebrews follows the same pattern. He was writing to people who were tempted to turn away from Christ to their former Jewish religion. He's hammering home the vital truth of the superiority, the supremacy, and the all-sufficiency of the Lord Jesus Christ and His sacrificial death for our sins. To turn to anything other than Christ for salvation is spiritually fatal. Christ alone fulfilled everything that the Old Testament pointed to in type. The priesthood, the sacrifices... And all the religious rituals found their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And in a nutshell, if our trust is in Christ alone for salvation, we will escape God's judgment. But if our trust is in anything or anyone else, our own adherence to some religious system or our own good works or righteousness, our religious heritage or whatever, we will die and come under judgment. You know, in one sense, the Bible is a very um, bloody book. Think of all the sacrificial animals whose blood was shed under the Old Covenant. Think of the importance that is placed on the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ that was shed, that was poured out at Calvary. See, the shedding of animal blood did not seem to trouble those who lived in the Old Testament times, but we cannot assume the same response today. Can you imagine the outcry of the animal rights activists if they had lived in Israel in days gone by? 
I mean, while there are a number of folks who would feel uneasy reading about the shedding of blood in the Bible, there's a great deal of inconsistency, some might even call it hypocrisy, regarding these matters. For example, think of all the television programs that now feature human corpses in the process of an autopsy. They seem to delight in revealing all the inner organs of the human body. Many of those who strive to save, you know, the whales or dolphins or polar bears or spotted owls are silent about the bloody murder of innocent children by abortion. Why don't they show these bloody deaths on television or react with horror knowing that they are performed many times a day? See, I'm well aware that the subject matter of our text may not be popular. But that doesn't make it any less important. Indeed, it is a matter of life and death, eternal life and death. You know, as our author says in verse 22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So let us pursue the subject of shedding blood, death, carefully, realizing how important it is to God and to people. So the issue at stake here are of eternal significance. If the repetition seems tedious, bear with it. If God uses it to open the eyes of one soul to the impossibility of salvation by human works or worth, And to the cross of Christ as God's only provision, it is well worth repeating again and again and again. So the author reviews. Verse 24 reviews what he stated, what the author stated in in chapter 9, uh, verse 11, as well as in chapter 8, verses 1 through 5. Verses 25 and 26 review Chapter 9, verse 12, verses 27 and 28 draw both a comparison and a contrast that present the only options in the future, judgment or salvation. See, he wants us to understand that. The author wants us to understand that because of Christ's once-for-all sacrifice for our sins, we can look forward to salvation when he returns not to judgment. See, these verses fall into two sections. And in the first, the point is Christ once for all sacrifice of himself for our sins far exceeds the Old Testament sacrifices. In verse 23, when he says, the author says, therefore, it goes back to the previous section which made the point that forgiveness of sins is possible only through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. The blood sacrifices of the Old Testament all foreshadowed the supreme sacrifice of the Son of God. The writer says that the copies of the things in the heavens, and he's referring to the tabernacle and its furnishings. These things had to be cleansed by the blood of sacrificial animals, but these things were not, excuse me, these things were only earthly types of heavenly realities. See, the heavenly things themselves had to be cleansed with better sacrifices than these, namely the blood of Christ. And he uses the plural to refer to the one sacrifice of Christ, which gathered up into all 
excuse me, into one all of the Old Testament sacrifices. According to Donald Guthrie, Christ, Christ's sacrifice is so many-sided that it required a whole range of sacrifices to serve as adequate copies. But t- verse 23 raises a question. What are the heavenly things and why do they need cleansing? See, we need to understand that the author is speaking spiritually. There's no literal altar or golden lampstand or table of showbread in heaven. But why would the spiritual counterparts in heaven, whatever they are, require cleansing? Some say that it is a dedication-type consecration, consecration um, similar to the dedication of the tabernacle. Some relate it to the fact that Satan and the, the fallen angels have defiled heaven and that in his atonement Christ disarmed them and triumphed over them, cleansing heaven. But in light of verse 24, which states that Christ entered the true holy place in heaven to appear in the presence of God for us, the author is likely referring to the fact that we, God's people, are now his spiritual dwelling place. It's what he said in chapter 3, verse 6. How can we be pure and free of defilement so that God may dwell in us, not just individually, but corporately as his holy temple? The answer is that Christ's blood alone can cleanse our conscience from dead works to serve the living God, as it said in verse 14. So in 24 through 26, the author further explains this better sacrifice. See, we who are not used to the physical rituals and sacrifices of the Jewish temple may not struggle with the spirituality of Christian worship. But the first readers of this letter were having a hard time letting go of the physicality, if you will, of the temple and the sacrifices. So the author emphasizes again that Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but he entered into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. See, under the Jewish system, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies once a year to present the people before God, to represent them before God. But Jesus is in the true holy place permanently on our behalf. Additionally, the high priest had to keep returning year after year after year with the blood of the sacrificial animals. But Jesus once for all, offered his own blood. He didn't have to suffer and die over and over and over again from the foundation of the world. His one sacrifice at the consummation of the ages put away our sin. See, the consummation of the ages is similar to Paul's phrase in Galatians 4, Verse 4, where it says, But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth His Son. 
So when he when he the writer of Hebrews is talking about now once at the consummation of the ages he has been manifested. That's what he's talking about. When in the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son. It implies the pre-existence of Christ before his birth. It also means that the cross represents the apex or the consummation of God's purpose for the ages to glorify himself. See, at the cross, God's perfect justice was displayed. If he had simply forgiven our sins without the payment of the penalty, he would not have been just. The death of the infinite holy Son of God satisfied God's wrath by paying the penalty that we deserved. The cross also magnified God's amazing love and grace. Any system of salvation that magnifies God's, excuse me, that magnifies human merit or minimizes the cross is not from God. At the cross, Christ put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. It's interesting because the Greek word in verse 26 for put away is used in only in verse uh, chapter 7, verse 18, where it refers to the setting aside of the law that established the Levitical priesthood in deference to the greater Melchizedek priesthood of Jesus. See, put away is used in a technical juristic, kind of like a jury sense, meaning to annul or to cancel. This means that when Christ died, he paid the penalty for the sins of all his elect, both before and after the cross. While it's controversial and difficult to work through, I think that a careful understanding of the atonement requires that we see it as particular and not general. Here's what I mean. If Christ actually paid for all the sins of all people, then all would be saved, which Scripture plainly denies. If he only died for some sins of all men, unbelief being excluded, then how is the sin of unbelief atoned for? No one can pay for his own sin of unbelief. So I suggest and submit that it is more biblically correct to say that Christ died for all the sins of some some people, namely the elect, his elect. John Owens' The Death of Death in the Death of Christ is the most thorough treatment of this issue, and the above reasoning is found on page 61 and 62. So I'm saying that Christ did not come to die and then leave salvation up to the sinner's fallen choice, to the fallen sinner's choice. Rather, he came to save his people from their sins, according to Matthew 121. He came to lay his life down his life for his sheep, John 10, uh, 11, 14, and 15. 
Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, Ephesians 5.25. He was offered once to bear the sins of many, Hebrews 9.28, reflecting Isaiah 53.12. He will not fail in his purpose to save all that the Father gave him, John 6.37-40. See, his sacrifice on the cross was put away all of our sin once and for all. So you may wonder, well, how can I know that Christ offered himself for my sins? Folks, that is a vitally important question. First, are you aware of your need for cleansing from your sin? Christ didn't come to put away sin from those who think they are righteous in themselves. We find that in Luke 5, 31 and 32. Second, are you aware that you can do nothing to pay for your sin? You cannot put away your own sin through penance or personal determination or self-denial. Years of good deeds cannot pay your sin debt. Even the Old Testament sacrificial system could not put away sin. Only Christ, by His death on the cross, could put away sin. See, if your trust is in Him and in Him alone, then you can be assured that He has put away your sins. If our trust is in Christ alone to pay for our sins, then when Christ comes again, (laughs) this is glorious, we can look forward to salvation and not to judgment. See, in the first half of, of verse 27 and 28, the author draws a comparison between the deaths of all people and the death of Christ. It says it is appointed to men to die once. Even so, it was God's purpose for Christ to be offered once to bear the sins of many. But the second half of both verses contains an unexpected contrast. Men die once and then comes judgment. Now you would expect verse 28 to be, you know, parallel Christ died once and he's coming back for judgment, which is true. But instead, he says that Christ died once, but he will appear a second time, not for judgment, but for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly wait for him. I know this has been a mouthful. A lot has been said here. But there are four important practical truths here that we need to to drill down on, to hone in on. The first one is that God has appointed death for all people. Enoch, Elijah, and those living when Christ returns are the exceptions. But apart from them, all must die by God's appointment. In other words, death is not a, quote, natural, unquote, process Death is a reality because man sinned and God ordained that the penalty for sin is death. You know, I once attended a funeral at a liberal church where the minister tried to soothe everyone by saying that death is just a part of the natural cycle of all things. It is not. Death is God's curse on our sin. For the believer, the sting of death has been removed by the cross according to 1 Corinthians 15. But even so, death is a reminder of our sin 
and God's holy justice. Also, the Bible teaches that God sovereignly appoints both our birthday and our death day. I mean, David proclaimed in Psalm 139, In your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. Death may seem accidental to us, but it is never accidental to God. No one lives a day less or a day longer than God ordains. That should give us great comfort when we lose a loved one, because especially if it is a younger person. See, God has reasons and purposes that we do not know, but we can trust Him. As Job said when his ten children were killed in a sudden windstorm, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. See, this truth that God has ordained the day of death should also give us peace as we think about our own death. While we should not take reckless chances with our lives by doing foolish things, and while we should be sensible with regard to diet and exercise and proper medical care, the fact is our lives are in God's hands. We will die at His appointed time. We can believe that. Great truth. Second truth, apart from Christ, People die and face judgment. See, men die once and after this comes judgment according to verse 27. This verse clearly refutes reincarnation. People do not die and come back in another life as someone or something else. You know, I once heard a radio interview with a woman in Southeast Asia who was dying of AIDS and when she... uh, contracted, which she contracted from her husband, who got it from prostitutes. The interviewer asked her if she was angry at her husband, and she answered that she was not angry because she knew that she would come back in the next life in a better situation because of her unjust suffering in this life. And I thought, what a lie of Satan. What an absolute lie of Satan. Reincarnation is totally at odds with the truth of the Bible. We die once, and then comes judgment. See, this verse also refutes the idea that people get a second chance to receive Christ after they die. Folks, death is final. It's, it, it's set. Philip Hughes writes, To refuse the cross as the instrument of salvation is to choose it as the instrument of judgment. This is why the Bible urgently warns us, now is the day of salvation, 2 Corinthians 6.2. Delay in trusting Christ could be eternally fatal. Believers in Christ, however, do not come into judgment, but have passed out of death into life, according to John 5.24. Also, Romans 8.1 says, there is therefore now No condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Believers will appear before the judgment seat of Christ to be recompensed, to be uh, reconciled for the deeds done in the body, whether good or bad. 2 Corinthians 5.10 See, our faithless evil deeds will be burned up as wood or hay and stubble, 
whereas the gold and silver and precious stones will be on the basis for our reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 15. My, the third principle here that we need to drill down on and, and hone in on is that Christ died once to bear our sins, but is coming again to finalize our salvation. Christ was offered once to bear our sins. This clearly refutes uh, the, the Roman Catholic practice of the Mass, where Christ is offered as a sacrifice repeatedly in the communion elements which they believe becomes the actual body and blood of, of Christ. You know, Catholic theologians claim that the priests are making present the eternal and timeless sacrifice of Christ, but they believe that it actually becomes the body and blood of Christ. But the average Catholic worshiper scarcely understands these fine distinctions they do not understand that the instant they trust in Christ's all-sufficient sacrifice, God forgives all their sins and imputes the righteousness of Christ to them. But see, Christ's second coming will not be in reference to sin, since that issue was completely resolved at His first coming. Rather, he will appear for salvation for those who eagerly await Him. Oh, I can't wait for that day. Lord Jesus, come quickly. And there are three tenses here to our salvation. We were saved from the penalty of sin in the past at the moment we trusted in Christ. Presently, we are being saved from the power of sin as Christ works His holiness into our daily lives. And in the future, when Christ comes, we shall be saved from the presence of sin completely and finally. See, when He appears, we will be like Him because we will see Him just as He is. 1 John 3, 2. And because of this great promise, the fourth thing, those whom Christ has saved eagerly await His coming. The picture behind the last phrase in 9.28 here of Hebrews is of the Jewish believers on the Day of Atonement. You remember their high priest took the blood and went out of their sight behind the veil to make atonement for their sins. And, 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 and he would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat. And the minutes that he was there seemed like hours as they anxiously awaited his reappearance. Finally, finally he came out again. And the people rejoiced because they knew that God had accepted their offering and their sins were covered. Even so, our high priest has gone into the true holies of holies, into heaven, out of our sight. He took his own blood with him and he sprinkles the blood on the seat the mercy seat, and we eagerly await to see Him come again. Because then all of God's promises of salvation will be fully, fully and finally realized. Oh, 
do you eagerly await the coming of our Lord? You know, as Paul faced martyrdom, he wrote, In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. Then he added, And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. 2 Timothy 4.8 You know, as I wrap this up, years ago, in a frontier town, a horse bolted and ran away with a wagon that had a little child in it. And the young man risked his life. There was a young man that risked his life to catch the horse and stop it and rescue the child. Sadly, the rescue child went on and grew up and he became a lawbreaker, a lawless man. And one day he stood before a judge to be sentenced for a serious crime. And the prisoner recognized the judge as the same man who years before had saved his life. And he pled for mercy on the basis of that experience. But the words from the bench silenced all his pleas. He said, young man, then I was your savior. Today, I am your judge. And I must sentence you to be hanged. Folks, Today, Jesus Christ offers salvation to all who will trust in Him. If we refuse to turn to Him in faith, one day we will stand before Him as our righteous judge. Will you die and face judgment? Or will you trust in Christ's supreme sacrifice of himself for your sins and receive his salvation? Wow. What a passage. What a word from God. What a Savior we have in Jesus Christ. I want to thank you so much for tuning in. You know, next week we're going to continue on in our study of Hebrews. And until we see each other, I just encourage you to stay safe, practice good hygiene, stay studied up in the Word of God, eat well, get some exercise, and whatever you do, whatever you do, give God all the praise and the glory and the honor that is due His name. We hope to see you all real soon. And God bless you.